You're listening to a 58 Ember production. Good morning, Discovering Discos. Today we discover the economics of Christmas trees, how Pizza Hut was once the largest buyer of kale, and wolf reintroduction into Colorado. Welcome to Discover Ag, where food meets pop culture. We're your host, Natalie Antara, a millennial cattle rancher and dairy farmer. And every Thursday, we go beyond the headlines to discover what's new in the world of food. Well, we are officially in the week between Christmas and New Year's, where I don't know what day it is. I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. Am I supposed to be working? Like, what is happening right now? I definitely think we're not supposed to be working. And I do think this is the longest week of the entire year, probably. Like you said, it just blurs, melds, molds together. I think this is even worse because we have like, it's the way it falls on a Monday. It was like the whole weekend. Now we have the whole week and then we'll like go all the way until next Monday. It's kind of like a really long time. Producer Maddie says, S-O-S. Send help. (laughs) Someone send help. (laughs) And you're in Montana. Yes, we are. I talked about that a little bit in last week's podcast episode. We came up here for the holidays and we're staying through my dad's birthday. And I'll have to say, Montana turned out we had the most idyllic white Christmas. It was almost straight out of a painting. It was beautiful. Yeah, it, you were sending videos and pictures and the girls were very jealous because I don't think they've ever had a white Christmas. Um, and so they were very envious of your white Christmas. I said that when I text you, I kept thinking on my morning walk, children would absolutely appreciate. Like if anyone could appreciate the moment of the beauty that morning, it was children. Just, it felt like I said, it felt like out of a book. And I just imagine your girls running around, like jumping in the snow, picking it off of the trees. I don't know, something about children too. I just, I feel like they would have got it, you know? Yeah, I know. But then Daniel quickly reminded them that if it was a white Christmas, they would have had to wait even longer to open presents while he like broke ice and water troughs and made sure the cows were milking and all the things. Like I feel like growing up on a dairy farm, white Christmas was absolutely the worst Christmas because it meant like we had to wait so long to open presents. You're like, we like a white Christmas has to do with milk. That That's enough for us. We don't that's need the all snow. <laughs> I, I want to get for Christmas. I I will say my hair froze on my morning walk. So I was thinking, well, I wish everyone could experience a a white Christmas like this. I don't think everyone's cut out for it. I imagined you and I was like, she'd be done. She'd she'd be out. (laughs) I'd be out for sure. I was wearing shorts and a sweatshirt here the other day. I think I'd be out on my hair freezing on a walk. Sorry. All right. Well, let's get into our episode today. But before we do, I do want to say we have an interview at the end of this episode with Land Trust. So stick around with that. It's going to be a really fascinating conversation about um, how if you are a farmer or rancher, you can lease out your land. And if you are a hunter, how you can find places to go hunt. So stay tuned for that interview. And then as always, we want to thank our main sponsor, Case IH. Bailing, cutting hay, feeding, hauling, loading, pulling, raking, cleaning barns, mixing feed, fertilizing, mowing, chopping, seeding, clearing, irrigating, furrowing, cultivating, ditching, digging, emergency tow, harrowing, hoisting, leading, parades, excavating, grading. Let's make it simple. This tractor does it all. So no matter what you're doing, can do comes in red. That's the Farm All Tractor. Learn more at caseih.com slash farmall. I will say you must be in the holiday spirit because that just rolled off your tongue like it was a Christmas jingle and I loved it. I'm getting better at it. I'm telling you guys. I'm like, they're going to watch. They'll change it on us in the new year and I'll have to learn like a new one. But I felt like I really nailed that one. So thank you, Case IH, for your sponsorship. 
All right, you guys, diving into our first article to discover this week, title, Oh, Christmas Tree, Oh, Christmas Tree, The Economics of the U.S. Holiday Tree Industry. So this was an article that was written by two business school professors whose students asked them to explain the economic impact of the winter holidays. And in the holiday spirit of sharing, they did an article on Christmas trees. And I have to say, I thought this was really interesting because... Around Christmas time, I do think a lot about consumerism and the money behind the holiday, but I have never extrapolated that or thought about the money behind the Christmas trees themselves. And it's a multi-million dollar business slinging Christmas trees. So this was interesting to read. Yeah, it was fascinating article to read, like just thinking about how big exactly like you said, how big this industry actually is and how there's like two very distinct pieces. You have the natural trees and then the artificial trees and they are like absolutely like in competition with each other. I, it was really fascinating. I actually was quoting this article at the dinner table last night at Christmas dinner. Like I was like, did you know about Christmas trees? So I'm really excited to get into this because you can definitely take this information to your next holiday party. I was going to say, I love when we can take what is from the podcast and bring it to our conversations, whether it's around the dinner table, at the Christmas party, at your next girls gathering, guys, dates, whatever it is, we love giving you guys that information. So I have to know, now that you mentioned, there's the two dueling groups. Are you, is the Vanderdusen household team natural tree or team artificial tree? I had the same question for you. Uh, we are artificial tree. We got a new tree a couple years ago. Before that, I had the same tree since college, and it was a white tree, and it was turning major yellow. So we finally got rid of it after, I don't even know, like 12 years, and got a new tree, and I love our new tree. But I grew up, so my mom was a two-tree household, and so the one in the family room was real, and the one in the formal like living room was fake. I love a two-tree household. It's so extra for the holidays, and I I want to be a two-tree household. We just don't have the space, and I don't, I don't have the capacity to be that yet. But it is goals for me to be a two, three, four. I mean, sling the Christmas trees everywhere. Like, be Oprah. You get a tree. This room gets a tree. We all get trees. That is my goals. But I will say we're the same as you right now. We're artificial. I also grew up with a real tree. And so I do think there's like that nostalgia piece that I crave for my own house with the real tree. But the house we're in is Luke's grandparents' house. It's just a tiny little farmhouse. I love it. I love it dearly. But it is not conducive for space. Where I put up our Christmas tree in our house is definitely like a footpath traffic area. It's not like off, you know, on a shrine by itself. And the thought of walking by that, kids running by it, and knocking off needles and having to clean that up every single day, every minute, every hour of the day, it's too much for me. So until I get the proper space, I'll have to be team artificial, but I will transition as quickly as I can to team real. Producer Maddie said that her husband's allergic to cedar, so it is no real trees around her. Oh, that's such a bummer. I wonder how common that is. I don't know. I was just kind of thinking that too. So um, on the real tree note, what we used to do when we were kids is we'd get like the potted one and my dad would plant them. And so we have like a spot on our dairy that is like all of the trees that we had over the years. I love that idea. Oh yeah. my goodness. Really wow. So amazing. Oh, everyone's doing the awe. Our comments. I know. Right that was like collective awe around, heard around the world at that moment right there. So I thought this was cool that there's three different ways to do a natural tree is you can go to a national forest and chop one down yourself. It usually costs like less than $10, but obviously not very many people do that. You can buy a Christmas tree at a Christmas tree farm or import 
buy an imported tree. So we can kind of dive into each of those, but those are the three real tree options. Yeah, I say growing up, I remember going out and hunting down our own Christmas tree. And I have a sister that does that. And I think it's really fun. Um, As you alluded to, I do think the article is calling us lazy because not many people do that anymore. I'd actually be curious. This article didn't give percentages for a lot of the populations, which I mean, it's not like they have a census going around to, you know, conduct that information. But I am so curious if we could like kind of make our own with the Discover community like we often do. Um, You guys DM us comment like I would be so interested to know how many people actually go out to get the tree through the forest versus, like you said, visiting a tree farm. I don't know about the imported one. I want to talk about that later because I do think it's interesting how we import and who we import from. I had never really thought about that. I do think going to a Christmas tree farm probably dominates a majority of what people do. I didn't know that Taylor Swift grew up on a Christmas tree farm. Yeah, I want to dive into that because I think this is kind of the most exciting part of the tree farm portion. Actually, there's a lot to talk about here with the tree farm portion. But yeah, she announced, which I'm sure the Swifties know this. She actually has a Christmas song and she has been quoted in multiple interviews now throughout the last handful of years talking about how she grew up on a Christmas tree farm in Pennsylvania. Shout out to Taylor Swift for putting Christmas tree farms on the map. I know. I wonder what that was like growing up in a business, I guess, that was centered completely around Christmas. Like, I wonder if it took some of the magic out of Christmas. Like, was it obviously that's like your busiest time of year? You're going to be like working like crazy. Like, I don't know. It'd be kind of, I I ended up deep diving like her Pennsylvania home she grew up in. Holy cow. It was like freaking gorgeous. So two things on that note, her father was a Merrill Lynch financial advisor. He ran the farm in the spare time. So I think that's important to note. Like she didn't grow up completely, I guess, immersed in it. It was kind of like this hobby side business for the family. But I read a couple articles where she did note how she's obsessed with Christmas. She loves it. Like her friends call her an elf because she, not what you said, the opposite. Like it didn't take away the magic of Christmas for her. It almost like highlighted and illuminated it for her. And I could see that where it wasn't the sole family business. It was the side thing. I could see how it just was like a really magical thing that you guys did at that time of the year. And you probably have really good family memories around it versus it being like, kind of the stress the whole your whole life. It it seems like it was just kind of a portion of it. Yeah, I that makes a lot of sense because one of the things I read was that Christmas tree farms are not very profitable. It takes 10 years before, you know, the tree is big enough to cut down, so it's like a huge investment. And I was wondering looking at our home in Pennsylvania, I was like, how did they afford that house on a Christmas tree salary? Uh there are though 3,000 Christmas tree farms across the country and they sell about 12 million trees a year. Yeah, I don't know about you, but did that feel very disproportionate? Like that seems like a little amount of farms to be producing that many trees or no? I kind of thought so too. And I went to try to kind of fact check them and I saw varying articles with different numbers. So I'm not totally sure. I feel like I don't know if I trust that number. So I personally do know a uh, owner of a Christmas tree farm. And if you guys would like to follow along with her or get more of a you know, personal taste uh, behind the scenes, you know, like follow someone on Instagram that does this, you guys can go to Tuckaway Trees. That's her handle. She's from Ashley and she's also from um, Pennsylvania, like Taylor Swift. So you guys can check her out if you want. But back to the economics that you mentioned. Yes, being in the Christmas tree business, I think would be hard. I mean, we talk a lot about like cattle having, <laughs> you know, like longer, multiple years to get a return on your investment. Christmas trees, wow. Like you said, they can take around a decade. So it depends on the tree type, like furs and I don't know, 
balsa. I don't know. All the different <laughs> Christmas trees. I saw like seven to eight years. I saw 10. I saw 12. So it definitely takes a long time. And then I was reading a really interesting article from OSU, Oregon State University. They had an uh, article done by the extension office there. And it talked a lot about the challenges, which welcome to agriculture, farming and ranching, like predict- unpredictability is our middle name. But it was talking about like weather changes and how it's affected a lot of, of these tree farms with like the increased temperatures. They'd have a lot of like needles dying out and just like the trees being damaged. And like you said, if a farmer, you know, hypothetically loses even a something as small as like 10, 15, 20 percent of their crop, that turnaround time, that 10 to 12 years, like you'd have to have a substantial amount of profit to sit on to be able to make that cushion. And so I do see how we're having these stats of farms shutting down. I think the USDA found that almost 500 Christmas trees tree farms shut down between uh, 2014 and 2019. So I think we're seeing, unfortunately, a decrease in this industry. Yeah, which leads us to the third option for the natural tree, which is buying an imported tree. And we import about 3 million trees, mostly from Canada. Yeah, I thought that was so interesting. Thank you to our neighbors up north. For no idea. Giving us the Christmas trees. So that uh-huh. I was wondering if these ones are kind of like where you see like you can like buy them at like a hardware store or like, you know, that they're like, you're not going to the farm and collecting them. And then moving to the artificial trees. Uh, What I thought was really interesting about the artificial tree portion of this article was that a lot of them come from China. They're made in this Chinese city of Yiwu. I definitely said that wrong. And the nickname of that town, though, is Christmas Village. It makes up 60% of the world's Christmas decorations. Well, that was crazy. That is so crazy. Can you imagine living in a town where you're, you're like the North Pole, basically? Like you're just making Christmas decor. It's a pretty small city and it's busy mostly around the fall, like August, September kind of time, which makes sense to have that turnaround ready for October. So it's almost like their Christmas spirit is at a different time of year. And I think it's probably a little bit opposite of Taylor, where I don't think the city probably likes Christmas very much. Yeah, I I don't know that they have more what I was talking about, where they're like consumerism of Christmas and it's crazy. So some statistics in 2014, we had about 11 million artificial trees and 22 million natural trees. And we have like kind of flip flopped that now, just like, you know, what are we at now? 10 years later, we have about 15 million natural trees and 20 million artificial trees. So there is definitely an uptick in the artificial trees. The artificial trees do cost more originally, but obviously they last like multiple seasons. Oh, we did not talk about this. So the top states for actually um, producing real trees, I wanted to say this is Oregon, Washington, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, New York, Virginia, and North Carolina. I'm so happy you brought that up because one of my last final questions was, thinking of most states and agriculture, it's not evenly distributed throughout the US, right? Like I couldn't visit, you know, a orange farm in Nebraska if I wanted to. I mean, maybe there's citrus, I don't know. But I wonder if Christmas trees has a place in almost every single state because there's a place that we can go to in Nebraska, you know, like does every single state have a Christmas tree farm? Is it the most unique sector of agriculture where it's spread out like that? I thought it seemed really diverse too. Like if you figure you can grow something in North Carolina and then also like Michigan and Wisconsin and then Oregon and Washington, like that seems very diverse areas. So I would imagine there's a lot of states that can grow Christmas trees. Yeah, super cool. My last two things that I'll say is you can recycle your real trees if you want. There is more than 4,000 Christmas tree recycling programs and they turn them into all sorts of different like things like mulch and uh, provide 
shelters for fish and ponds, tons of cool things. But the last one, if you are going to do a real tree, try to cut it as late in the season as possible. And that way its needles have a chance to quote unquote set and they'll be less likely to fall off, creating a mess like you talked about. And if you do it late enough and keep it cold, the tree can literally last for months. Like you could have a Christmas tree still alive in your house at St. Patrick's Day. My husband would hate that. (laughs) Yeah, that feels like a commitment. I don't know if I'm that committed to Christmas. All right. So before we get into our next article, we want to thank our sponsor today. Our next sponsor is Enchantment Vineyards. This vineyard and winery is located right here in New Mexico. Enchantment Vineyards is family owned and operated. It is two sisters at the head along with their families, their parents, their children. They produce about 30,000 bottles of wine a year, producing Chardonnay, Crimson Cabernet, and so much more. Tons of whites, tons of reds. Everything they put into the bottle is hand harvested and so much care and attention goes into growing and harvesting the grapes. In today's market, wine producers are not required to put additives on wine labels, but Enchantment Vineyards knows that great wine comes from great grapes, not additives. So when you drink Enchantment wine, you can know there is nothing in that bottle except grapes. So if you are looking to purchase some wine, you can use the link in our show notes and use code DISCOVER20 to save you 20% off your next order. I'm actually going to Enchantment, I think, later today. So I'll be drinking some wine. Hmm. Tell them I say hello. I will. I will. All right, you guys, diving into our second article to discover this week. Headline, Pizza Hut was once the biggest kale buyer in the U.S. But before the kale craze began, America's largest buyer of kale was not health food stores or eco-conscious vegan restaurants. It was Pizza Hut. Yes, Pizza Hut in all its cheesy, greasy, meaty glory. And the reason why the chain purchased so much will surprise you. So this is actually an old article I pulled. We searched for it because there was a trending reel from Paul Saladino, which his handle used to be like carnivore something, but he did it and he created the reel to emphasize like a different point. It was more about like his green belief that greens and kale are bad for you. He He's kind of that train of thought if you guys have heard that, but in the reel, he just kind of briefly mentioned the pizza effect as well as the PR agent behind kale's rebrand. And I was hooked immediately. I told Tara, we have to cover this. I was so intrigued. I feel like this is one of my Roman empires. Like I think about the fact that before 2014, kale was mostly used in um, salad bars at like pizza restaurants and any place that has salad bars actually. And then it wasn't until then that people actually started eating it. So you talked about Christmas trees at your Christmas dinner table. I talked about this article and everyone at the table immediately was kind of like you said, blown away. But then they were all recalling like going back to in Montana, we used to have this place called Village Inn, which is a big pizza kind of supply chain place. And all my sisters were like, I can remember that. I can remember like the kale lining the salad bar. And so it was so interesting how I feel like we completely forgot that. But now that it pointed out and I, you know, recalled that statistic, I'm like, That's right. That's what kale was used for. They said in 2012 alone, Pizza Hut purchased 1,400,000 pounds of kale. That is so much kale for just decor. Like when you think. I know. Like some farmer was out there growing kale and Pizza Hut was like, here's our decoration. Well, that's what my brother-in-law said. One of them was like, do you think it bothered the farmers that they were doing all that input and all that work? knowing that it was just going for decor and then going to be thrown away. 
So I thought the history kind of a kale actually like coming out of Europe, like that's where it originated from was kind of fascinating. They called it an unglamorous winter food crop because kale is grown in the cooler months of fall and winter because it's hardy and it gets better flavor. I say flavor lightly when I use it there with cold weather. So my sister actually made a kale salad for Christmas Day and it was phenomenal. But my sister is a salad whiz, so she could make kale taste good. I agree. Most people probably think kale, like you said, flavor. You know, they use that a little bit sarcastically or more lightly. Did you dive into the rebrand of it and the mastermind behind kale's rise to fame, essentially? Yeah, it was kind of crazy. It was like all attributed to this one person, this Oberon. Is that Oberon Sinclair claims to have been the person who made it popular. And then from there, it like spiraled into lots of things. But that's we can start with that, that that is the person that is like supposedly gave kale. It's like, quote unquote, it's a superfood. Yes, it it blows my mind that one person, one brilliant brain could do this. I just think that speaks to one, the power of marketing, and then also to the power of individual individuality. Like you can do a lot of things. If one person can make kale as popular as it was, listen, you can do anything. But like you said, her name was Oberon Sinclair. They nicknamed her the kale queen, vegetable royalty. And like you said, she took kale single-handedly from this little known garnish to the superfood icon. They asked her why. I found a really interesting article about it in Entrepreneur. And she said simply because she liked kale. She said she was on a trip to France, like you kind of mentioned, in Europe. And she had it in a salad there. And she said, oh, what's this? I like it. And they said, oh, it's kale. And she said that was literally the moment where she she didn't really like orchestrate it. She just said she followed her passion of liking kale and then kind of did like guerrilla marketing 101. I'm like, this lady should teach guerrilla marketing in college because she's absolutely a master at it. But I want to see a documentary made into this because I tried to deep dive that point of start, which I have a little bit of information on like her first steps. But then all of a sudden, like Michelle Obama was eating it on, you know, like a night show and Beyonce was wearing it on a t-shirt. And I was like, what happened in between? A documentary needs to be made on that because I couldn't find any articles that talked about all the middle of what she did to get it to that point. And it's like crazy how rapidly it increased. So from 2007 to 2012, uh, kale production increased by 60%. Like you're not talking about like small amounts. Like it completely revamped the kale industry. And so, yeah, like you said, like once she kind of got it started, then in 2009, Bon Appetit did like kale chips. Uh, then a New York City chef like did something. Dr. Oz talked about kale with his viewers in 2010. 2011, Gwyneth Paltrow was baking kale chips on Ellen. And then by the following year, so 2012, Bon Appetit named kale the, what was it? Kale the top 10 trendy foods of 2012. And that was also the year that we launched National Kale Day. That is nuts. That is absolutely crazy. Um, Talking about what you said that it kind of just was a rapid rise for kale. One of the articles talked about how that sudden popularity put a lot of unsustainable pressure and competition on growers. And I thought that was so interesting to think about what that did to the kale industry. Diving further into the stats, like you said, they interviewed a Carolina producer. And she said in 2004, she sold 260 cases of kale, which is just shy of about $6,000 in purchases. And in 2014, she sold more than 28,000 cases, which was over $700,000. So our top producing uh, states for kale, I have that here as well. California, Georgia, New Jersey, and Texas. 
Texas. I wouldn't have thought that. Interesting. I feel like that's kind of spread all over the U.S. too. You said New Jersey, so that's all the way up north, or did I make that up? New Jersey is not up north. It's not? I would consider that the northern part of the New Isn't Jersey. It like south of New York? Like it's not like Maine. How much more? But more, how much more north can you get compared I don't know, to like, like Alabama, Hampshire, Georgia, Florida, Rhode Louisiana? <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. Is Maddie it, is siding with me. Producer Maddie says, yes, it's still north. <laughs> okay. It's north. I just, when I think of north on the East Coast, I feel like I think of like Rhode Island, Massachusetts, Maine, Vermont. That's what I think of as north, like way, way up there. Okay. So moving on from our debate, I saw a really funny meme recently where they said the the most dramatic vegetable is spinach, which does a disappearing act when you cook it. But the neediest vegetable is kale because it requires you to massage it. Absolute theatrics. And I thought that was so funny because one of the things uh, people do with kale is they'll like massage it with olive oil because it helps kind of like break it down. I got a good chuckle out of it. On my carnivore diet, I don't think I'm eating any kale. I'll tell you that much. I was waiting for how long it would take you to talk about how much you will either hate kale or not be eating kale. Will not be eating kale. (laughs) All right. Our next sponsor for today is American Farm Bureau. We have the American Farm Bureau convention coming up in just a couple of weeks. I'm so excited about going on this. The convention is going to be in Salt Lake City this year from January 19th to the 24th. There's still time to register and get your tickets to go. There is going to be so many phenomenal speakers, so many workshops, breakout sessions, really cool farm tours. Their keynote speaker this year is best-selling author and former associate athletic director of student counseling at the University of Michigan, Greg Harden. He has counseled more than 400 student athletes who have gone on to some major professional sports. And then you will also be able to find us on stage. So Natalie and I will be recording an episode of Discover Ag live on stage on Saturday. We will be recording live at 3 p.m. on Saturday. So find us there. And then you can find us each individually at a workshop. So Natalie's workshop will be on Sunday at 1.15. And it'll be called As Seen on Social Media from Farm to Fork in Action. And my workshop will be on Monday morning at 9 a.m. And it is at the intersection between farmers and companies within the supply chain. So make sure you get registered. If you use the link in our show notes and enter code DISCOVER, it'll get you some great free merch um, upon registration. I am so excited. I hope we see a lot of you guys there. Make sure you find us. Say hello if you do. We want to connect with you. And then also, I'm just excited to kick off 2024 at the conference. So I am ready. Uh, Before we dive into our last article too, I do want to remind you guys to sign up for our Discover newsletter. The link is in our show notes. And I have to say... Every week, I think we do a fabulous job of bringing you guys our favorite items we discovered. They're very eccentric. So they're across the board. We don't like pigeonhole into just what we're like watching, reading or eating. Like it's not just one thing. It is across the board, multiple things. Sometimes it's for ourselves. Sometimes it's for our spouses. Sometimes it's for our kids. Like we are bringing a lot of value in that email and it is short and sweet. Like we're not putting fluff in the inbox. So make sure you guys sign up. Um, I think it's a really fun way to connect with us beyond the podcast in like a more personal manner, which we always love to do with you guys. All right. Diving into the third and final headline to discover title nearly a century after government sponsored programs eliminated wolves from Colorado. Wildlife officials on Monday released five of the animals onto public land Northwest of Denver in an effort to restore a permanent population of the predators to the state. So I will say that there is so much going on with this. It is <laughs> a very um, heated topic. A lot of people have opinions about it. The Colorado Parks and Wildlife actually posted a video on their Twitter and the comment section. If you guys want to just pop a bowl of popcorn, sit down 
and read through it, you could probably waste the entire day. But I think this is a really important time to talk about something we've kind of addressed on the podcast, but not as point blank as I want to do now, I guess. This topic has a lot of opinions around it, as I stated. And we are not bringing you one view in a granular expert manner, I guess. Like That's not the point of our podcast. There are podcasts out there that do that, but uh, that's not ours. Ours is to keep you guys updated what's going on in the world of food every Thursday in kind of a fun, entertaining way. So we will talk about this article, but there's a lot more to discuss about it. There's a lot more, you know, very, I mean, we just don't have the time to do articles in that manner. If we did, we'd, you know, just pick one article, you guys, and like deep dive it for you over the hour. That's not our goal. So I just want people to know that going into this conversation, there's probably a lot of viewpoints we won't discuss. And even maybe one viewpoint, we won't get to like a very deep level of it because we're here to just kind of let you know what's going on and do it in like a fun, entertaining way. Okay. Um, so yeah, you started off with saying it is super controversial. There is a lot of feelings around this. I posted a reel on Sunday about it. And like the comment section on our Discover reel even is like pretty heated. And there is a lot going on back and forth there. Um, so yeah, there's just very strong emotions tied to this. Um, a little bit of history. The last known wolf in Colorado was killed in 1943. And so this is quote unquote, the reintroduction of wolves. On the note of how heated this is, I do feel like a lot of the articles I looked at were written very much from the viewpoint of like uh, conservation and not from the rancher. Oh, that's so interesting. Cause I feel like everything I've been consuming has been from the point of the rancher and so it's nice that we kind of, I guess, there to know that there are both sides being represented in the news because those are pretty much the two opposing views. Um, they're calling it the controversial, one of the most controversial days in Colorado wildlife history. You basically have the tension between the cattle ranchers, livestock farmers, hunters, you know, everyone who sees wolves as a threat, and then the conservationists who point to their potential ecological benefits. And that's what it really comes down to. I will say, I think that was very much so highlighted in the voting behind this because that is a very kind of pain point, I think, for a lot of people. There is a really interesting graph that color-coded the portion of the states that voted for it and those that opposed it. And you can see that it is almost that problem some states encounter where larger cities, more population-dense areas get something passed that is maybe opposed by the rest of the state. Um, the strongest supporters for this proposition was Boulder with 68% and Denver with 66%, which obviously that's not where they're releasing the wolves. And so I think people have a pretty big problem with that, you know, with the idea that public voting can take place on something that maybe doesn't necessarily represent or, you know, affect them. It's very, very um, heated. Yes. Yeah, it was definitely the two main population areas voted yes for this when the wolves, the five wolves are being released. I mean, it's state-owned land, but it's obviously in like rural communities. So I did see a lot of that conversation. It was like people were voting on something and passed it that will not even have to deal with it. Like now it'll be the people who actually didn't want it dealing with it. And that was a lot of the back and forth I saw in the comment section. Um, one of the things too, like about the technicalities of this is Colorado officials, the wildlife officials were scrambling to even find wolves for the deadline of December 31st. 
I do think it's interesting that you said that because we did have a comment on our Discover Reel from a lady from a gal named Georgia. She actually ranches in Colorado. I know her. Her handle's too complicated for me to say and have you guys follow her. So maybe we'll share it to stories. But she commented, Colorado did not do this right. They did this too quickly. We have very little in place to help livestock producers. The image of wolves for those in urban areas is very different than the reality of wolves for those of us having to live with them. And I do think it's interesting because, as you mentioned, we were scrambling. Like, Oregon was reaching out to neighboring states to try and put this plan into effect. And both Idaho and Wyoming declined them. They're coming from the stance that what is to say these predators simply wouldn't just wander out of Colorado into our states. And so Oregon was a state that finally stepped at the very end and agreed to like capturing and transporting some of their animals so that um, Oregon could hit the deadline set by the referendum. Sorry. Yeah, Colorado. I know there's a lot of states there. It was getting confusing. You said a lot of states. Yeah, (laughs) I did. Yeah, so they ended up with five wolves, two juvenile females, two juvenile males, and one adult male. And they're a mix of like black and gray. They were examined, tested, crated, collared, and then flown to Colorado by volunteer pilots. Um, you mentioned, I think the it was the comment what that uh, Georgia said. Um, Georgia. Rea- Georgia, sorry. That the reality of what the dogs are like for urban people versus rural is very different. And there was a comment in one of the articles that said, essentially, very large, very powerful dogs. I was like, I feel like that's a little bit downplaying what they are. I mean, they're an apex predator. And so I do think like there is coming at it from both sides. I just think that people are describing things in the way that like suits kind of like their agenda in these articles. For sure. I saw a comment from someone that said, get livestock guardians, lock up your cattle and stop bitching. The world doesn't revolve around humans and wolves belong in the ecosystem. So again, I think maybe there is a little bit of disconnect of what people actually dealing with the predators will have to face. And I do think, you know, Idaho and Wyoming have interesting perspectives. Even I'm wondering about people who are tuning in from like eastern Nebraska, like the neighboring that part of Colorado. Like how does what Colorado again decides to do affect all of those like immediately neighboring ranches? Um, they had to be very specific in where they released these wolves. It was interesting. There were like very set parameters around like it had to be west of the continental divide it had to be so many miles from like uh neighboring states and um some like sovereign tribes land and a bunch of different things and so eventually oregon found like okay this is area that will fit colorado. all of these cram- sorry colorado oregon <laughs> that's because oregon has dealt with this i think that's why it's in my mind is it's coming from a lot of people who are like with fresh testimonies of what this has done for the oregon state but i apologize you're right we're dealing with colorado okay the place they found in Colorado is interesting because it is heavily kind of ranching area. So in Grand County, it had 126 ranches, so 17,000 head of cattle. Eagle County had almost 10,000 head of cattle. And then Summit um, was lower with only 15 head of cattle. And the human population there is about 16,000, 56,000, and 31,000, which I think it's interesting to note because a lot of the people coming from conservation side of it will say, well, look at what wolves did for Yellowstone. And then the counter argument to that will people will come in and say, yeah, but that is not like an area that people are living in. And that is not an area that has like agriculture industry. So I do think they're kind of comparing a little bit of like apples to oranges. Like, yes, wolves did, you know, some great things for the ecosystem in Yellowstone, but to extrapolate what's going on in the bubble of Yellowstone to, let's say, like Eagle County or Grand County, it's just not going to be the same thing. It's like not going to be the same ripple effect. 
Yeah, um, I said that these uh, wolves are collared, so they are like GPS tracking them, and it's obviously illegal to kill them unless they are like actively attacking your livestock or like endangering humans. But in Wyoming, you are allowed to shoot them, and so people are talking about like, well, if the wolves end up in Wyoming, then like residents of Wyoming are allowed to like obviously kill them, which again is a hugely controversial issue within this. Talking about bordering states, something I saw from New Mexico is we have worked really hard to reintroduce the Mexican wolf to northern New Mexico, and it's a smaller wolf. And so there's also concern of like, how will these wolves now released in Colorado affect like the wolf population in New Mexico and like just that entire ecosystem. And that's actually what I kind of ended up like deep diving is the history of like the Yellowstone wolves, which I agree with you. They're like in a bubble there. So it is different than like all the other places, but it's crazy how just the introduction of one animal can change so, so, so many different things. And one of the comments I saw was you cannot just rewind the clock 200 years. And I thought that was really powerful. Like, yes, there may be like conservation benefits. Yes, it like increased beaver populations and all these different things in Yellowstone. But like thinking about our world and the populations, like people and cattle and all of these things that are now a part of our modern world, you cannot just rewind the clock and expect it to like go back, I guess, to how it was without some unintended consequences. Yeah, I remember talking about this kind of exact same train of thought a long time ago on the podcast when we talked about bison and kind of um, not reintroducing it, but there was something going on with it in in Montana. And we had the same conversation that a lot of the conservation point of view is coming from like all the amazing things the bison had done prehistorically and how they were, you know, uh, roaming the land at that time. And it's like, yes, 100% agree with that. But like you just said, we like mankind has inserted absolutely a footprint and effect. And so to think we could just kind of mimic or recreate nature with everything we have disrupted with it, you know, just doesn't work that way. I will say on the point of the conservation side, you know, you talked about how one animal can essentially like putting it back in could have massive effects for the ecosystem. And I think to the point of the conservationists, removing that one animal can also. And so I see the point of like trying to have that balance because there is, you know, the, the, the predator of the wolf has a role in helping manage the wildlife. But I will say that is one thing I kept continually seeing from residents in Colorado talking about how wildlife, I think, is already on the de- decrease there. And so they're actually really concerned that basically wildlife population will be decimated for their state. I mean, they're very, very concerned that putting these wolves back in will have um, pretty destructive effects, like not a a benefit towards it. Yeah, it'll be interesting to watch it play out, obviously, over the next several years. Um, Looking into the future, wildlife officials are planning to reintroduce about 10 wolves per year for the next three to five years. So this was not just like a one-time release. Like this will be ongoing and then like watching the populations. I will say in Yellowstone, one of the last articles I read was like now there is like a hunting based like quota system for hunting the wolves because obviously they like don't have any natural predators. And so they're trying to find that balance even in Yellowstone of like how many wolves is too many, how many is not enough. Like one of the researchers um, that I saw was like the wolves ate a lot more elk than like Yellowstone initially anticipated and it cut their elk population in like half. And so just like Trying to figure out all of these different balances, I guess, is going to be, I think, very complex. Yeah, I think, as we've said multiple times, there's just a lot of viewpoints to consider here. 
And I mean, I'm obviously a little bit biased to coming from like the ranchers perspective and point of view, I think just because I can connect with relate with that so much and just put myself in those shoes really, really easily. But like you said, we just don't know what will happen. So it will be interesting to watch. Um, as always, we would love your guys's opinion and take on this, especially if you are in one of the states like I know Wyoming has had a really long history of like, doing this kind of like setting, you know, getting it passed, getting it overturned. Like Wyoming has gone through some stuff with the wolves. Um, Oregon, obviously, as I've mentioned multiple times, the state of Oregon. So if you guys are in any of those states and have an opinion you want to share, you can either go comment on the reel. We try and keep up with the comments and screenshot those to stories. Um, or you could DM us and we can screenshot and share that to stories too. But we always love to include this perspective of you guys. So please, if you have something you would like to say that adds to the conversation, feel free to do that over on the Discover Ag Instagram page. And I think that uh, wraps up our topics for today. So it is time to get into our interview with Nick Castro from Land Trust. Land Trust is an easy-to-use online marketplace that generates income for landowners and provides recreational opportunities for outdoor enthusiasts by connecting them to each other. Hundreds of landowners, many of whom are fourth, fifth, or even sixth generation, currently list over 1.3 plus million acres on land trust offering bookings for do-it-yourself outdoor experiences from hunting and fishing to bird watching foraging and farm and ranch tours and more all while retaining control over their property i will say we have personal experience with land trust i have a lot to say in this interview so if you are coming at it from the ranching farming landowner side you will have a lot to glean from this conversation and if you are coming from the experience side where you want to have these experiences, whether it is, you know, bird watching, hunting, fishing, foraging, whatever, um, you will have a lot to learn from this conversation too. I really stand by Land Trust. I'm excited to dive into this conversation. So let's do just that. All right. Well, hello, Nick. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on, ladies. Yeah, I have to say, I feel like this is maybe a long time coming because I was connected with you guys. Gosh, was it four years ago? I mean, I was still working at the hospital, so it was a substantial time ago. Yeah, I mean, probably right when we launched, honestly. Yeah. So for everyone tuning in, I mean, we have read ads for you guys, you know, leading up to this. And I think they have a good idea of who Land Trust is. But that is one thing we love to do in these interviews is just dive a little bit deeper than we can give in our ad space. So why don't you introduce Land Trust to our community, talk a little bit about, you know, what Land Trust is and kind of why I guess you saw the need for it. Sure. So Land Trust is a land sharing website for outdoor recreation. So I'm sure your audience is very familiar with the Airbnbs of the world, which is like a home sharing website. Maybe they're in, uh, familiar with car sharing like Turo. Well, we're land sharing. So instead of renting somebody's car or house, um, you're renting access to somebody's land to do outdoor stuff. So I started the company around hunting to start. Um, I always knew that we were going to do more than that. Uh, hunting is still a very large activity, but fishing, foraging, shed hunting, we have people booking, you know, uh, horseback riding stuff where they bring their own horses to a ranch and are able to ride and then farm and ranch experiences. So, uh, up here, just in Wilsall, Montana, we have a rancher doing sleigh rides. Um, there isn't a lot of snow right now, but they're doing, <laughs> they put, they put some tack, some wheels on it and they're doing it like that until they get snow. But just all sorts of fun outdoor recreation on private land. Yeah. I remember when we had our first conversation with you guys, I thought this is such a genius idea because you're right. You are connecting two things that absolutely make sense. You're connecting a landowner who has an asset and you're connecting someone who doesn't and who wants access to that. 
but you're connecting to things that have so many barriers in between them that they, for some reason, just can't come together on their own. Yeah, it's it's been one of those, you know, hunting is the obvious one, right? Um, landowners and private landowners and hunters have had a strained relationship, I'd say, over the past. Um, and I think it's gotten worse because there's less supply, there's less ground, and there's pretty much the static demand. So you have the same amount of demand and, le- and shrinking supply. There's obviously a lot more um, maybe tension there. I also think that because of things like liability, we were just kind of chatting about a few different things before we hopped on this podcast. Um, Historically, with liability, and unfortunately, our society has become a lot more litigious in the last 30, 40 years, landowners are rightfully very worried about getting sued and losing their land and their livelihoods. Um, And so, you know, that's what marketplaces like ours are really good at. They can come in, they can inject transparency, safety, uh, accountability into these transactions that historically were kind of sketchy, frankly. I kind of want to like back up and go to the landowner side. How is this like a value to landowners? Like how do you like generate an income off of this or or why would you want to sign up? So I'll just say we have about a million and a half acres of ground on land trust today across about 40 states. Uh, we do have, you know, a variety of types of landowners. However, we have really kind of honed in and focused on partnering with owner-operator production ag landowners. So for those who are listening and who don't know about that jumble of words, it's people who own, you know, own their ground and are, you know, full-time farmers and ranchers for commodity production. So, um, and I think the reason that landowner base has really loved what we're doing is because they're running a business. Like this is not just some ground, 40 acres of timber they own and whatever it came from somewhere in the family. And it just can kind of sit there. Like this is ground that has to be profitable. And so, you know, we're business partners with landowners, they're not our customer. We share a mutual customer being the guests. Um, and, for those landowners, they're looking to stack enterprises. I think I'm sure you guys talk tons about this. Uh, it's talked a lot about right now in the regenerative space. That regenerative movement is all about finding those enterprises and stacking them. We talk a lot to our landowners about, you know, you're not in the cattle business or the greens business, you're in the land business, and those are line items. But what are those other things that you can go and stack against that? And so recreation is a market that has always existed. You know, if you take hunting, for example, like hunting leases have existed for a long time. I don't know if maybe you ladies and your families have done hunting leases on your ground before. However, that, that transaction wasn't really ideal because those landowners were basically selling a property right away for X amount of time, a year, a couple of years. And in that scenario, those landowners, their family, their friends, their neighbors, their business partners couldn't use that resource. So if you, if you did a hunting lease, it's like, all right, well, whoever leased it from me, they own the, those rights for that period of time. And the one thing that I've, I don't come from an ag background, uh, but the one thing I've learned over the last four and a half, five years is that, especially for the owner operator, control is probably the number one motivator. It's before money. Um, so they want to control their property, their property rights, their, you know, their way of life. Um, and yes, income is obviously a driver as well, but I think that's, you know, that's the general idea is they want to be able to generate income from from their you know recreation access, uh, whatever their land has to offer. But they want to do it in a way where they retain control of their ground so that they, their family, their friends, their neighbors, local kids, whatever, can still use it, but still monetize, you know, the excess amount of it. I feel like we're on our initial call again because you're saying so many things that speak to me as a landowner, you know, production agriculture um, that I think is resonating with so many people tuning in that are in the same position and it two of them to pull out. And I think we could kind of maybe dissect them and dive into them a little bit. But is like you said, is that business aspect of how do we make what we have our assets, this land provide for us in 
you know, other ways that aren't, you know, like taking from the land that isn't more production put into it. Like what are other unique ways we can pull from this? And, you know, when Luke and I had this initial conversation, uh, which I'll get into, you know, our experience with land trust, because we do, we are signed up with you guys. We've had hunters, you know, for the last four years come. So I can give, you know, very personal testimonies to working with you guys. But that was one of the first things is we do have so much land that, you know, why not try it this way to see what it's like to get an extra income from this that doesn't require us running more cattle or, you know, doing more production ag in a different way. And I just, I just love that that's kind of your guys's business model is helping ranchers and farmers earn more income off what they already have. And the other thing that, again, going back to our original conversation of why we chose to, you know, trial you guys and then ultimately sign on with you is you said that aspect of control. And it was so important to us. I grew up with a family, you know, you kind of mentioned there are interesting relationships between landowners and hunters sometimes. And the ranch I grew up on, I wouldn't say we were leery of letting, you know, hunters on our property, but I remember it always being a really big deal. You know, we had to come in, my parents had to meet them and talk to them and they had to fill out this form. And I remember always just having a little bit of almost anxiety and stress in the air when we were like, deciding whether we wanted to like let this hunter onto our operation or not. And so I think that carried forward with me to our current operation. And I remember having a conversation with Luke of being like, well, do we really want to let hunters on? You know, I think it was just pulling from, you know, that childhood experience. But you guys absolutely have made that such a breeze. You've taken so much stress out of it. I mean, you guys handle, you have the liability, you do the vetting. I mean, I kind of want you to get into everything you guys do because you have made it such a stress-free experience for us as landowners. Well, I appreciate the the kind words there. And it's good that I'm saying the same stuff I was saying four years ago. So we haven't changed our story at all. <laughs> but uh, yeah, and like I said, these are traditionally very, there was a, it was a low trust transaction. Not necessarily because every, I mean, eight out of 10 people, nine out of 10 people that I'm sure went on your, your family's operation when you grew up are probably great people, mm-hmm. but you didn't know which one was going to be the one that's going to be a problem. And realistically, there was no transparency. So, you know, when I was starting this business and I'm trying to reverse engineer, like, why do we have these strained relationships? Why is it hard for landowners to say yes to sportsmen and invite, you know, for sportsmen to find places like that? And I heard over and over again from farmers and ranchers like, yeah, we used to let people and then someone screwed it up, right? You know, they had a couple of bad experiences and mm-hmm. done. We're, we're done with that. Um, and it really came down to like anonymity. So someone knocking on your door is totally anonymous to you. And with anonymity, there's also a lack of accountability. And this is what marketplaces, not just land trust, but why Airbnb and these other marketplaces are really successful is because they took these low trust transactions. Like people used to list their rooms on Craigslist and you maybe host people like that. That's super sketchy. Um, but they, they inject transparency and accountability and trust um, into these transactions. So with land trust, first of all, terms of service, no one as a landowner, you're never going to host anybody who hasn't accepted our terms of service, which holds you, holds you harmless. Uh, second, we do ID verification of every guest on the platform. So we use a third-party company that does it. They take pictures of their IDs. They do like live photos and they use some sort of magic to make sure you're a real person and you are who you say you are. Everyone's paying with a credit card. I'm sure you guys have done trips with your friends and you know you book the Airbnb and you're like, hey guys, we need to clean the place up. We need to make sure it's not bad because this is my name. I'm going to get the rating. It's my credit card on file. Like that whole aspect. I think there's an important piece on the liability. Liability has always been the number one thing for landowners like to hurdle over. Of course, there's family dynamics and there's, you know, making sure everyone buys in, but liability is always number one. 
in the 34 biggest ag producing states, the states want to facilitate this type of transaction. They want this type of activity to be happening because it brings new wealth on the farm and ranch. And the states know that liability is the biggest hurdle. So in those 34 top ag producing states, the states have some, you know, it's a little bit same flavor of agritainment liability limitation. So if you're facilitating agritainment, agritourism, whatever you want to call it, and um, it could be hunting, fishing, horseback riding, whatever, and, and for money, not for free. They're saying, if you don't have gross negligence, we'll actually just limit your liability if anything happens on your place. So the state, in those 34 states, the state is actually protecting you. Then you get into our um, protections. So we have um, we have a million-dollar general liability policy that's a backstop for any policies you may carry. We do participant insurance. So even though that guest on your place, if they you know, step in a badger hole and break their leg, they're technically liable. They've already accepted all the terms of service, but for whatever reason, if they want to be a pain, they can come to us. We'll cover $10,000 in medical bills. Then you have property protection. So that's something we self-insure. If someone breaks a gate, the fame shoot a cow. No one's ever shot a cow and they trust. Um, <laughs> but um, they're liable. But if for whatever reason, again, they, they're trying to not be liable, we'll we'll strip the check to the landowner. They're our partners. Uh, our partnership is a lot more valuable than, you know, a couple thousand bucks. Um, and so we we come we come at it from transparency, but also insuring as much as we can. And we'll continue to increase those insurances. And that is what marketplaces, like I said, not just us, but like other big marketplaces are good at is that trust, transparency and injecting that into these transactions. Oh, and then they get raided after everyone. So when Natalie and her husband uh, host hunters through land trust after every trip, I mean, everyone's familiar with this. They get to rate them and vice versa. And that accountability piece, like I don't know many landowners who are going to invite a three-star rated sportsman onto their onto their properties. So you got to love the ratings. Like I feel like even like Uber, I'm always like, oh, how am I rated on Uber? Did my Uber driver like me? <laughs> like I feel like that is such a thing now. Like you want to have good ratings on like all of the different sites because you want to get like picked up again, right? Like you want everyone yeah. to like you and use you again. Uh, so we are not signed up like Natalie is, but I am trying to get both my family and my husband's family to be a part of this. And so I'm really curious, what does the sign up process look like? So I am a landowner. I want to list my property. What are all the steps we go through to like actually get the property listed? Sure. So if you're a landowner, this is like a semi-interesting conversation. First of all, there is no sell. So I kind of joke, we're probably the only people that knock on a landowner's door, you know, uh, that is not asking them for control or, or money. Um, so it's a, it's, it's free to sign up with us. We're business partners. So we make money on the transaction. We don't make money unless you do. We make, we make a commission essentially, but if it's interesting to you, um, you could, you can call us, uh, we'll answer any questions. Again, we know that this is not one person's decision ever. It's always a family decision. Um, there's all sorts of family dynamics. So we're happy to, you know, we have brochures, we have videos of other, we have video testimonials. We have a lot of um, content that you can bring to your family and say, Hey, let's look at this. Um, in probably in Montana, Nebraska, Kansas, North Dakota, Iowa, South Dakota, uh, Oklahoma, we actually have people on the ground. Um, so we have people who live in those markets. We call them landowner success managers and they'll actually come out to your place. Um, and you know, we could probably figure out getting visits out to other states too, but those are where we have people visiting landowners today. They'll come out and visit. They can sit around the table again with your family, whoever is important in making that decision, answer questions, take photos of your property. Um, 
but we make it really easy. We know our landowners are super busy. They have six jobs every day being, you know, farmers and ranchers. So we'll actually, if, if you guys say, yeah, we're interested, we'll actually go and build your listings for you. So we have a team here in Bozeman. Um, they're landowner onboarding specialists. We'll actually, one's in Fargo, one's here. And they'll build your whole listing for you. And then they'll set up a quick 15-minute kind of call, show you the listing if everything looks good, it's represented correctly. Um, we'll teach you how it works. So if once it goes live, we'll send you a test little inquiry. I think it's really important to call out that people can't just book your place. Everything is a request. So it's not like a hotel where I'm like, cool, I'm, I see Natalie's place, I'm booking it. Because that is control that the landowner is losing out on. So everything is a request. We'll show you how those come through. They come through on your cell phone. You can you get a text, hey, Nick is interested in coming out and hunting mule deer for a few days for $2,000. And here's my message. So we make sure you understand how to use it. And then you're off to the races. Um, so it's from someone saying that we're interested to getting their listing live. It can be or it could be the same day. You can build your own listing if you really like to. Or it could be a handful of days. Um, and then a lot of our landers are getting their first bookings within you know two to three weeks. Yeah, you guys, Nick is not lying when he says he makes this as easy as possible for you. I remember when we went through the process with you guys, I had a moment where I thought, is that it? Like, I'm done. That's all I have to do. It's up and running and working now because you mentioned that you guys will set it up for you. But I think one of the really great things about your company is that you guys are a spectrum. So if I had wanted the control to set up my own website and that landing page for myself through you guys, I can do that. But there's also the opposite end of the spectrum where you're like, hey, just let us know, answer this questionnaire, we'll do everything else for you. And I think you guys are just so respective of the individual landowner and the control they want in this. Because the other thing you have not mentioned yet is, again, it's also a spectrum from signing up. I mean, you can specify as the landowner, I want these days off because I have my you know, brother-in-law coming. I mean, we had to do that for ourselves, right? Like we want to be able to hunt this land for ourselves. So we're blocking off this part of the calendar. No one is allowed here but we're going to open up this place or this time frame, And we will allow this animal, but not this animal. And we will allow, you know, this portion of our land, but not this portion of our land. I mean, you guys have so many options that I feel really truly does give us as landowners ultimate control of what we want to put out there. And then you do it in such an easy fashion. Well, yeah. And, and I, the control is, is absolutely the thing to come back to. And the other thing is, not all of our landowners even allow hunting. So you choose whatever activities you want to allow. Uh, that ranch up here that's doing sleigh rides right now, they're just doing sleigh rides. Uh, and I think it's an interesting piece too. Um, hunting is still kind of the biggest activity on the platform just because that's where we started the business. But people who like to hunt, like to fish, like to camp. So we're getting to more like the kind of off-grid camping and fishing. Um, I think the category that I'm most excited about that we still we know is a thing, and I think it'll be one of the biggest, is just what we call farm and ranch experiences. So like, again, a Slayer Ed with that family is a farm and ranch experience. I think your guys' platform is really interesting because you're educating a lot of the public um, who are non-producers. I'm one of those people. Uh, and, and we've talked to like the understanding ag guys about doing this is like, how do we facilitate more of these farm and ranch experiences? Because all the landowners that are on our platform, I mean, these are the people going to ranching for profit. These are forward thinking people who are like, Hey, we need to figure this out. It wasn't just like, this is how granddad used to do it. But how do we enable our landowners to invite people onto their place, make money doing it, not just for charity. And I don't know, show them more about agriculture hands-on in person and not in a way that's like there's 60 people showing up. No, it's one group. It could be just one family. And I think those farm and ranch experiences could be harvesting, planting, calving, 
you know, whatever. It's just the way of life, how you run your agricultural systems, um, how you're doing regenerative practices, whatever it might be. That's a category that we're seeing more of. Um, we need to figure out how to kind of operationalize it so our landowners can easily implement these things. But I'm really excited about farm and ranch experiences being booked on land trust. So we've talked a lot about the landowner up to this point, and I'd love to maybe kind of, um, as we're wrapping up, talk a little bit about, you know, the value for like the sportsman, the outdoor enthusiast, like what does it look like on their side of the platform? Yeah. <clears throat> so look, I live out in Montana. We have a ton of public land out here. Um, and the, the most, most of the country's public lands are in kind of the Rocky Mountain West, let's, let's call it. So you look at Nebraska, Nebraska is 99% private. The matter of fact is if you love getting outdoors and you don't live in a handful of the states that have a ton of public land, um, you, you, it's going to have to be on private. 70% of the lower 48 is private. Um, 900 million of those acres are owned by production agriculture landowners. Um, so what we're doing is we're unlocking a ton of ground that wouldn't have been accessible to you before um, that is now accessible. And especially for those people who are, are you know, maybe you live in Missouri and you want to go out and do your first Nebraska mule deer hunt. Like, how are you going to do that? You don't know any landowners. Like you're not going to take time off of working away from your family to go and knock on doors. Like that's a, that's a low probability thing you're going to do. Now you have this ability to go and virtually knock on doors and basically book and secure your trip from home and know that you're going to be able to go and have that experience. And I think the one thing I want to call out is land trust is about experiences, not outcomes. Um, in the hunting world, it's not about killing a 200 inch buck. Like we had a little kid kill a 200 inch buck this year, but it's not about that. <laughs> it's about the ability to go out and have great experiences with friends or family on these beautiful properties. And when you read reviews, we see the reviews come in all the time, both the landowner and the guests, all they do is like talk about how cool it was to meet each other. Um, and like how cool it was to learn about the property and the family and you know, all the stuff they do. And I think a lot of our landowners, they live in really rural areas and most of them didn't think they would enjoy the social aspect as much as they do. Um, a lot of them were like crusty, you know, kind of older guys like, nah, I don't want to meet anybody. I don't want to talk to anybody. I just want to do my thing. And we'll see those guys write like a paragraph review about how cool it was to meet these people and their friends, literally like friends going on beyond that. So that is kind of who we help facilitate people looking for cool quality outdoor experiences if you need to kill a big buck or do that, like, great, you should call an outfitter. That's like, that is their gig. Um, come to land trust. If you're looking for exclusive access to private land and have to really like high quality outdoor experiences. Yeah. I have to say our last hunters were from Pennsylvania and it was kind of exactly what you were saying. I thought, wow, it's so cool that, you know, this world, these, um, hunters that were looking for this experience, as you said, um, you know, got to connect with us, come down to Nebraska, have this experience. And it was just like two worlds colliding. And I go back to what I said earlier. I think you guys are melding two worlds that absolutely fit together and need to fit together better. And you're just doing such a good job of facilitating that. Um, so thank you very much. Uh, as we, you know, kind of end this up, why don't you give us your, you know, call to actions um, for a landowner? Where should they reach out to? What are their first steps if they're interested in this? I will give this shameless plug over and over again. You guys, if you're a landowner, you have nothing to lose by reaching out, having the first conversation with Nick and his team, because from firsthand experience, we have worked, you know, with you guys almost four to five years now, and we've had nothing but really positive reviews. 
um, and we're earning extra income off of for our ranch. So where does the landowner go? What does it look like for them? What's their call to action? Yeah. And then also, um, you know, on the opposite of the spectrum, what where should the person who's tuning in that's like, man, I, I want to look at these experiences. I want to go to a state and do this. What Where should they go? What should they do? Sure. So I would say landtrust.com is the best place to go. There is a whole landowner section. So if you go to landtrust.com at the very top, you'll see green button says, list my land. And that's a whole landowner page. So you'll see, you know, landowner testimonial videos, all the information we've talked about here. Um, you could just call us like we're real people. It's not like chat bots and AI talking to you, like call our office uh, and you'll, you'll talk to people. So whether you're a guest or interested potential guest or a landowner, go to landtrust.com. You can give us a call, text us at that number. And, you know, we'll be happy to answer any, any and all questions for you. Well, Nick, thank you so much for coming on. I'm literally, when we end this call, I am sending an email out to my dad, my brothers, my brother-in-laws being like, we have to get some acres signed up here in New Mexico. Uh, And I am just so excited after talking with you about this and the options and the prospects of uh, being able to generate some income off of some of our land and and being able to open up, like you said, our farms and ranches to people who want to come out and enjoy that. So thank you so much to you, Nick, for giving your time and sharing about Land Trust today. And um, thank you to all of our listeners. This has been a 58 Ember production. For more shows, please visit the 58 Ember channel, 58ember.com, or find us at 58 Ember Media on socials.